Please remain standing with me as you turn in God's Word to Psalm 68. Psalm 68, we'll be reading verses 15 through the end of the psalm. If you're using one of the church's Bibles, uh, you'll find that on page 482. Psalm 68, verses 15 through 35. Children of the God of heaven, this is your Father's word to you this morning. Let us give our attention to the reading of it. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where Yahweh will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts from among men, even among the rebellious, that Yahweh God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation, and to Yahweh the Lord belong deliverances from death. But God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan, I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that you may strike your feet in their blood, that the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from the foe. Your procession is seen, O God. The procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers in front, the musicians last. Between them, the virgins playing tambourines. Bless God in the great congregation, Yahweh, O you who are Israel's fountain. There is Benjamin, the least of them in the lead. The princes of Judah in their throng. The princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali. Summon your power, O God, the power, O God, by which you have worked for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herd of bulls with calves of the people. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. Scatter the people who delight in war. Nobles shall come from Egypt Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord. To him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens, behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary The God of Israel, he is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. This ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray that he be pleased to minister to us through it this morning. Your word, O Lord, is a lamp to our feet, is our guide through the dark. It is the wisdom and truth that we follow each day. Your word is sweeter than honey and yet sharper than swords. It is healing, it is justice, and it is ours to obey. Your word is our understanding of grace and peace and love. 
These are the reasons why, why we draw near to it. So we ask that you would speak to us in your word, that we might know you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. The philosopher Plato in his uh, book, The Republic, argued that the best form of government would be that of what has come to be known as the benevolent dictator. That is, uh, the ideal situation, he argues, for people to live in is to be ruled by a king with absolute power and perfect love. A king consumed with love for his people and wielding the power to keep them perfectly safe from all their enemies. And of course, the great problem is where on earth can you find someone who has absolute power and is kind and merciful and loving? Maybe that's the problem. Maybe we're seeking earth for such an answer. But I think Psalm 68 has an answer for us. Uh, we started looking at it last week, I, uh, both because of its length and because of its, its depth of message. I wanted to slow down and cover the psalm over two weeks rather than typically the one week we spend on a psalm. So last week I, I looked at what it means when God says that he is the father of the fatherless and the protector of the widow. We saw that God uh, seeks out and he shows kindness to the hurting and the afflicted. He loves the poor. He loves the outcast. More than this, God calls us widows and orphans. And then he calls us to be his children, heirs of the kingdom of heaven. And so freedom really only comes in acknowledging our weakness and our neediness and crying out to God for rescue. This week, as I, I, I suggested we would last week, we really want to turn now and, and look at this journey that Psalm 68 describes. It tells the story of, uh, of Israel's journey uh, from slavery in Egypt to the foot of Mount Sinai in the wilderness, and ultimately into possessing the promised land and assembling at God's temple in Jerusalem. But what's interesting is that it really tells this story from the perspective of God, a, a mighty king, having conquered his enemies, uh, he's marching home to his palace where he will sit triumphantly upon his throne. And such victory marches were commonplace in the ancient world and would have been a familiar image to the original readers of Psalm 68. They would have known exactly what's going on here. God's headed home for his victory party. And yet the fact that it's a familiar image doesn't mean that it's without surprises. Because God is a king like no other. And so his march home, his victory march, will, will be like no other. 
In fact, the uniqueness of who God is will be brought to the surface and shown through the differences between God's victory march and that of your typical king in the ancient world. It's, it's in the details that God reveals himself. And so we want to, this morning, look at both the triumphant march of God and we want to look at the God of the triumphant march. And then, by way of conclusion, we're going to want to see how each of our lives uh, reflects, or at least should reflect, God's triumphant march. That this really, this, this journey ought to describe all of our lives. That our lives are meant to be reflections of Psalm 68. And so this morning, as we look at the psalm, I simply want to try to convey one overarching point, and it's this. Jesus is a king like no other. He rescues the dead. He befriends his enemies. And he gives gifts to those he conquers. He raises the dead. He befriends his enemies. And he gives gifts to those he conquers. And that's what we're going to see as we reflect on Psalm 68 this morning. In one sense, um, our psalm focuses on the journey from Mount Sinai in the wilderness into the promised land uh, to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And we're going to consider uh, those two places, Mount Sinai and uh, the Temple Mount, in just a minute. But you really can't talk about these without acknowledging the reality of Israel's slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And even our psalm can't avoid mentioning these. If you look at verse 6, when it talks about God leading prisoners out to prosperity, he's talking about Israel as prisoners in Egypt and then being led out ultimately to a land flowing with milk and honey. And Egypt is not the focus of our psalm, but you can't talk about Sinai, Mount Sinai in the wilderness without wondering how you got there. Because Sinai isn't really a destination. <laughs> it's not someplace that people seek out and go to. It's someplace you pass on the way to someplace else. I might mention certain states in our country, but I would probably offend people here. But usually it's not a destination. It's a long way from the promised land. It's a long way from Egypt. It's in the middle of the desert. And you have to say, what were they doing there in the first place? And the answer is that. It's in between Egypt and the promised land. They're there because God has rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. And he's taking them someplace so lying behind this entire psalm is the reality that God is the one who redeems his people from slavery. That our God is a deliverer. He is a savior. He is a rescuer. You don't have Sinai if that's not true. And that's really what we focused on last week, isn't it? That's the backstory. That God has rescued his people from slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh. The main story, at least in our psalm today, Psalm 68, picks up at Sinai. It's where God met with his people in the wilderness. It's where he delivered the Ten Commandments, not once but twice, uh, to his people. It's where he revealed his 
power and His majesty. You might remember that even the Israelites begged God to stop talking to them there because His speech was so powerful, so terrifying, that they feared they would die if He continued to speak to them directly. And so the mention of Sinai conjures all these images. It brings a sense of awe and fear and dread. God made it unmistakably clear at Sinai that he is holy and just, that he cannot be manipulated, that he is a consuming fire. For lightning and thunder obeyed his voice. They surrounded the mountain. It was ablaze. Sinai reminds God's people that he alone is God and there is no other. So Sinai can be a a terrifying image. We we are opening him this morning, the God of Sinai, and it, it talks about that image of dread. And yet perspective is a funny thing. Because what can be terrifying from one perspective can be an immense comfort from another. For what if such a God as the God we meet at Sinai should treat you not as an enemy, but as a friend? What if that God would accompany you through the wilderness and help you re-enter your homeland? What if that God promised to neither leave nor forsake you, but to protect you as you go? Who should be afraid of him now? (laughs) Is it not your enemies? And so as Israel prepared to leave Mount Sinai and head out through the treacherous wilderness and one day enter into the promised land, do you remember what Moses begged? Don't send us out alone. Go with us. If you don't go with us, we're dead. And so God said he would go. He would be their protector. In other words, they would take the God of Sinai and in a sense, take everything they learned at Sinai, everything they received at Sinai, in a sense, take Sinai with them through the wilderness and into the promised land. The God of Sinai would continue to meet with them in the tabernacle. They would put the Ten Commandments they received there in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, inside the tabernacle. And this is what it means when verse 17 in Psalm 68 says, Sinai is in the sanctuary. The gifts of God and the God of the gifts are in the sanctuary, in the tabernacle, meeting with us. And eventually that tabernacle would come to rest in Jerusalem and be replaced by the temple when the conquest of the land was done, when Israel had peace on her borders, eventually that tabernacle was permanently set up in Jerusalem, no longer taken down and moved about. And then, the very hill where where Abraham took Isaac to sacrifice him in Genesis 22, that very hill David purchased to be the site where the temple would be built. That hill called Moriah in Genesis 22 
would come to be called Mount Zion. Now, as far as mountains go, Mount Zion was not impressive. It was a small hill. There are many taller mountains, but this was the mountain of God, His dwelling place. Out of all the mountains in the world, all the hills, God chose that one in Jerusalem, that one, to dwell, to set up his house, to have his temple built. And so David uses personification in verses 15 and 16 as if all the other mountains look upon Mount Zion with jealousy. Why are you... Why do you look upon God's mountain with hatred and jealousy and anger? It's it's because God chose that mountain to dwell on and not you. It is the best mountain in all the world. It is God's mountain. God took up residence in Zion. And what that's really meant to convey is this glory image of a conquering king coming home. Look at verse 18. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. The idea is that God has come home with a conquered people trailing behind him. The king comes in and and behind him are all these people he has conquered. Again, this image is familiar in the ancient world. A returning king would always bring home captives and they would serve as servants and slaves, soldiers in his army. It was a parade, really, of humiliation for the conquered people. At least usually it was. But who's trailing God as he enters into Jerusalem? It's the Israelites. These are his people. So what's going on? Well, again, we have to remember our God is like no other. And the way this parade, this triumphant march is described really challenges all of our sensibilities. Because at the end of the day, our psalm isn't really about the triumphant march of God. It's about the God who makes that march. Look at verse 20. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belongs deliverances from death. Our God is a God of salvation. Our God is a rescuer. He takes no delight in destroying his enemies. His delight is in showing mercy. And it says he delivers from death. Now that can mean he keeps people from dying, but it can also mean he brings them back from death. The king of Zion can conquer even death. Death itself has no power over him. At our king's word, death must release its prisoners. This is our God. This is the God of Psalm 68. And there's a temptation when we hear about such power like this. We tend to think 
that God will be like those we know with absolute power in our world. They are aloof. They are self-absorbed. They are unconcerned with the dejected and the outcast, the weak and the poor. But of course we know that's not true about our God. We saw that last week. He cares for the widow. He cares for the orphan. Our God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. But I love how that reality is further borne out and, and, and how this parade is described in verses 24 through 27. Look at verse 27. There is Benjamin, the least of them, in the lead. The princes of Judah are in the throng. The least of the tribes of Israel is given the place of honor. The tribe of Judah, from where their future king will come, is just one among many in God's throng. This is not how we do things. We don't say, let's see, here, who's the least? And let's put them up front. Oh, where's the king? Let's stick him back there somewhere. But that's how God does things. And, And what he does, how he behaves, shows us who he is. He shows us. He doesn't just say he exalts the lowly. He does it. And he outdoes this even as the parade continues. The last several verses include an invitation to the kings and nations of the world to come to Jerusalem and sing praises to God. In other words, he doesn't simply conquer enemies. He offers them friendship. Some reject that offer. Some are dead set on serving other gods or just themselves. Some are unwilling to let go of their pleasures, their sense of control. But the offer is there. The invitation is open. God doesn't seek to humiliate those he's conquered. He offers them peace an opportunity to be reconciled because he delights in showing mercy. So he pursues peace with those who hate him. Isn't that what we heard in our declaration of pardon a few minutes ago from Brian when he read uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 10? While we were enemies, enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. While we were enemies, God sent his son to reconcile and bring us peace. For many, God's triumphant march ends in their salvation. And that wonderful news is drawn out in how the Apostle Paul reflected on this psalm in his letter to the Ephesians. Uh, Turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 4. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you'll find that starting on page 977. Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to start by looking at verses 7 and 8. 
Paul starts by saying, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Sound familiar? He's quoting Psalm 68, verse 18. But if you're listening carefully, something changed. Psalm 68 said, You ascended on a high, leading a host of captives in your train and re- receiving gifts from men. That was the common practice. A conquering king would allow those he conquered to bring gifts of tribute and deliver them to the king as an act of homage. It was a sign of loyalty and submission. But Paul doesn't say he received gifts from man. He says he gave gifts to man. Now that's no small difference. That's the opposite of what Psalm 68 verse 18 said. In one, he's the receiver. In one, he is the giver. What's going on? Did Paul make a mistake? Oops, Paul. Read slower. Read carefully. Is he playing fast and loose with God's word? I don't think that's what's going on at all. I think Paul is just basically summarizing all of Psalm 68 in one sentence. You cannot read Psalm 68 and not be struck with how he has blessed those he rules, those he's conquered. Uh, The children in the children's bulletin today have, have one of the questions from the Shorter Catechism, how does Christ exercise the office of a king? And the first thing it says, in subduing us to himself, he conquers us. But you can't read Psalm 68 and not be struck with how he blesses those he subdues, those he conquers. He sets the prisoner free, verse 6. He raises the dead, verse 20. He gives priority to the lowest, verse 27. He makes peace with his enemies, verse 32. He allows those he conquers to live in his house, verse 6. And so Paul takes a familiar verse from Psalm 18 And by slightly altering one word, he makes his hearer pause and think about the whole psalm. Yeah, our God gives gifts. We have a generous God. A God who blesses those he rules. Yes, in Psalm 68, God received gifts, but don't let that distract you from the rest of the psalm. He also gave gifts, and lots of them. He is a generous, he is a giving God. And the greatest gift he gives is salvation, not just from slavery in Egypt. The greatest gift is salvation from sin, from all that sin deserves, from God's judgment, from his wrath, from his justice. The greatest gift is that God comes to his enemies and he offers them not just peace, but to become part of his family, to become his children, to have the right to call him father. But did you notice what else Paul did in Ephesians 4? 
he says that this is Christ's gift. He's saying that Psalm 68 ultimately describes not just Israel's march from Egypt to Sinai to Jerusalem, but Jesus' descent from heaven to earth and back to heaven. The God of Sinai, the God of Israel, became man and walked this earth. And he did so because it was the only way to show mercy, to make peace with those who had broken his law and had betrayed him. The only way to do that was to pay the debt they owed. And so he came to offer his life in our place because the penalty of breaking God's law is death. And so Paul goes on and he reflects on the implications of that language in Psalm 68. He says, insane, verse 9, insane he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended to the lowest regions of the earth. And what he's talking about is the grave. He's talking about death. And a saying that God ascended on high, it means he first was willing to submit to death. The only way for God to be raised up is if he first allows himself to be brought low and humbled. And so Paul forces us to see something in Psalm 68 that we could have easily missed. It assumes a God who is willing to come to earth and to be brought low, to die in order to show us kindness, even when we were his enemies. What kind of God is that? And yet that death could not hold Jesus. He rose from the dead, and if the disciples had truly understood Psalm 68, they would have anticipated that. Because Psalm 68 tells us, Our God, to our God, belongs deliverance from death. Verse 20. Death could not hold Jesus because he is greater than, the, than death. He is more powerful than the grave. Our psalm not only foretold the death of Jesus, but it promised his resurrection as well. And all of this took place so that he could bless those he conquered, those who were his enemies. Romans 5.10 While we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That is who the king of Zion is. If you don't know this God or his grace, you need to. You know your sin, you know that you have disobeyed God. You know that you stand guilty before him. You know what you deserve. Not reward, but punishment. But now you know that he offers peace. You know that he offers salvation. He offers a gift so powerful that it conquers death. And all that he requires is that you confess your need and you turn from your sin and you follow him. 
for those who have done this, they are on a journey to Zion. Not in Jerusalem, but a greater Zion, a heavenly Zion. You see, Psalm 68 really tells the story of every Christian. We're delivered from prison to sin. In Jesus, we meet the God of Sinai who simultaneously terrifies us and gives us hope and confidence that he will not fail to protect and deliver us. He gives us direction for the journey ahead and he promises to go with us into the wilderness of this world. And he assures us that a day is coming when we will stand before him in heaven and sing his praises face to face. And on that journey, he makes no distinction. King or slave, it doesn't matter. All are equal in his throng. And he gives gifts to those who follow him. And his gifts are many. His gifts include salvation, as well as unique talents and skills with which you might serve your Christian brothers and sisters. But let's look again at what Paul lists for us when he talks about the gifts. When he quotes Psalm 68, Ephesians 4, verse 11, And God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. He's talking about the teachers in his church. From prophets like Moses to your local pastor. And they're given to the church. Why? Verse 12 tells us to equip the saints. To do the work of ministry. For the building up of the body. You see, there's a tendency to think you're alone. On this journey through the wilderness. Alone, by yourself. And that you need to figure it all out on your own. And one of the ways that God walks that journey with you is through the church. He meets with you each week as he did with Israel at Sinai. And he speaks to you from his word. He reminds you of his love. He talks to you about what it means to follow him in this life and he warns you of the dangers of straying from his ways. And he assures you that this journey is leading somewhere. And the end of the journey can be described in two ways. It can be described as heaven. Heaven is a place where we are headed. It is a destination it is the ultimate promised land. But we are also headed towards maturity, towards being more like God. God doesn't just call us his own and then leave us unchanged. He is transforming you, making you into what you long to be. Holy, pure, Obedient, mature, 
delighting in what delights Him. This is how Paul ended his thoughts about Psalm 68, Ephesians 4, verses 13 and 14. It says, God is doing all these things until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we might no longer be children. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wave of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. What a glorious vision. Which of us doesn't want to be more like Jesus? Who says, no thanks, I'd rather continue to be enslaved to sin, acting like a fool at every chance I get? Who of us doesn't want to no longer be driven and tossed, to no longer be children in our faith, but to be mature and grounded and resolute? That's what God's doing, and He will not fail. He is the greatest type of leader. He is loving and kind beyond measure, and he is all-powerful. He is everything Plato longed for, even if Plato never came to know him. But you know him. And he's come to meet with you today. He's, He's called you out of slavery and bondage. And he speaks to you, and he guides you on your journey. And he feeds you on the way. Just as God fed Israel in the wilderness with manna, God continues to feed and sustain you. He reminds you of that reality even as we come to this meal, the Lord's Supper this morning. He reminds us that He is with us and that we are headed somewhere. And so this morning, you can come to the table empty-handed And receive. Because you remember that that he has led captivity captive, a host of captives, and he has given gifts. At this table we meet the God who is the great benefactor, the great giver of gifts, and we are his subjects who are given those gifts and blessed by him. And so I'd like to ask the elders to come forward as we prepare to receive the supper this morning. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your Son into this world to reconcile your enemies. We thank you that you have subdued us to yourself, not to exact slave labor from us, but to bless us. We thank you that you are like no other king, that you are perfectly loving, that you are all-powerful, and that you call us your children and are preparing a home for us. Help us. Be with us as we travel this journey between slavery and heaven. Help us to follow you, to hear your word, and to trust it, not our own inner voices. We look forward to that day when all our strivings shall cease, and we will forever be with you on Zion. We praise you. We love you. We adore you, and we long to be with you. 
Amen.